Finally, um, 2 Samuel chapter 7. Uh, 2 Samuel chapter 7. I'll open us up in prayer. And then we'll get started. Father God, uh, what a joy it is to stand before your people uh, and open this word. I pray that for the next 40 minutes, Lord, you would hide me behind the scriptures, hide me behind the cross, and let your word come forth. Uh, Lord, let, let us be changed because of the scriptures. Let us be changed because of you and our interaction with them. Lord, what we teach from the word, what the scriptures show us is, is an entirely new way of thinking about how to live. And so I pray, Lord, you would speak through the Spirit this morning and help us see realities around us and help us believe them and help us walk in, in the transformed lives that we have in Christ. pray all these in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, open your Bible, 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll get there in a minute. Um, just sort of re- want to remind us, reground us in what we're doing in this sermon series, this, this Life Well Lived. Uh, this sermon series is trying to answer this question, how should we live as Christians? What should we be doing? How should we be thinking? What should we be loving? What should we be feeling? It's an attempt to try and wrestle with the fact that most of Western Christianity, at this point, has been boiled down to simply believe Jesus and go to heaven when you die. And the overarching problem with that type of Christian mentality is that many of the disciples of Christ are left with this question, well, now what do I do? They're wandering through life with a sense of aimlessness and and knowing all the while there has to be more to life than this. There has to be more to Christianity than simply going to heaven when you die. And the beautiful thing about the gospel is that it is so much more than just going to heaven when you die. It's much bigger, in fact, that, that no part of your life remains unchanged because of the working power of the gospel. The second week in this series, we looked at the source of a life well lived, which is the scriptures themselves. This book is how we know whether or not we are living a life that is pleasing to the Lord. If your life is untouched by this book, you should ask yourself if you really do believe in the Christ of which it tells us about. And then a few weeks ago, we looked at prayer as the lifeline of a life well lived, wherein we spent a large majority of our time together simply praying through the Lord's Prayer together, realizing that the maker of heaven and earth longs to commune with you. Each week so far, we've been trying to press into the very practical implication of the gospel's work in our lives and how we should actually live transformed lives and it spur us on to more Christ-likeness. And this morning's message is no different. The title for this morning's message is Stewardship, the Value of a Life Well-Lived. Now, I told you when we started this series, I had all intentions in the world of actually stepping on toes throughout the series. And if my experience in pastoral ministry has taught me anything, it's that people have their toes stepped on more often than not anytime the pastor starts talking about money or giving. One evangelist I know said, if you really want to kill a service, mention money. Mention the billfold. But it doesn't take me being a pastor to realize this, that this is a sensitive subject. You see, when I examine my own heart in regards to money and giving, I would be lying if I didn't feel a little uneasy at times. I don't think I'm alone here. As people, we tend to be the most private about our personal finances and our health information than anything else. 
And so when someone who doesn't know your personal finances gets up here on a stage and with the word of God says, here's how you should think about spending your money, you will no doubt become a bit defensive, perhaps even combative. I'm saying all this because I I get it. I had the same initial reactions as many of you. But not only do I not need to be a pastor to know this is true or to examine my own heart in light of money, but a simple plain reading of the scriptures themselves will show that this, is, that this internal wrestle we have with money and generosity is true of all of our hearts. Listen to these statistics. 16 out of 38 of Jesus' parables deal with money and possessions. 16 out of 38. Nearly half. Nearly 25% of Jesus' words in the New Testament deal with biblical stewardship. One out of every ten verses in the Gospels, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, one out of every ten verses in the Gospels deal with money. There are more than 2,000 scriptures on tithing in the Bible, money and possessions in the Bible, which is twice as many, listen, twice as many verses that talk about faith and prayer combined. So there's this argument in the culture which says, I feel like all the church ever talks about is money. And all they want is my money. And they just say, give, give, giving. And all they talk about is money. But the weight of Scripture alone bears on us the reality that there is something more about our relationship with our finances and how we think and act and feel than what we realize. So if when you heard that the topic for this morning was on stewardship, You began to get uneasy, began to regret perhaps coming today, like, Pastor, why couldn't you be sick again? (laughs) It might be a sign in your own heart that you need God's word for you today more than you realize. So let's let's start. What is stewardship? Here's 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 a definition. Stewardship is the process of being responsible with someone else's property. It's the process of being responsible with someone else's property. Let me give you an example. My wife and I, a few weeks ago, went on a date. We don't get many of these date nights, but we found a babysitter willing to come sit with uh, the kids in our house, and, and so we went on a babysitter. In that moment when we left the house and the babysitter was there, did the babysitter become my children's parents? It's a simple question. No, they did not. They didn't. Of course not. They, they, these weren't her children, but she was responsible for them. You see, she was a steward of them. She became a steward of the children. Some of you are responsible in your jobs of managing people and giving tasks out to people. You are stewarding people on behalf of perhaps your employer. This is an example of stewardship. A financial advisor overseeing someone else's investments doesn't own the money in the account and yet is stewarding that money to the great end. So stewardship is not just a matter of how we handle our money, I know. You see, stewardship is how we handle all the resources which God has given us, whether that be our finances, our time, or our natural God-given abilities and skills. However, for our purposes this morning, since the scriptures mention uh, our relationship with money far and above all these other things of how we spend our time, how we spend our skills, we're going to focus on our relationship with our finances this morning. So how do we do this, Pastor? How do we manage money well? Let's take a look at our text with me. Look at, look at 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 1 with me. 
Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. You see, God had established David as king of Israel at this point. He'd been on quite a journey. God took him out of the pasture, made him a national hero with the whole Goliath thing, and then made him king. And now he has given him victory over all of his enemies. And David looks in all of his great wealth and prosperity, looks out of his balcony, and he just feels this sense of gratefulness. He just looks at all the Lord has given for him. And then his eyes fall on the tabernacle. The tabernacle was, was, was God's tent. It was a tent God had instructed Israel to construct for him. And it would be the place where his presence dwelt. God's home on earth. But it was just a tent. So David goes to Nathan. He says something like, Nathan, this, this isn't right. I live in this nice house that smells like cedar. God lives in a tent. I should, I should build him something nicer, Nathan. And can you imagine Nathan's response? His response was what any pastor responds when someone who is really wealthy comes to him and says, I want to give something to God. Look at verse 3. He says, Nathan said to the king, go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. He said, amen, brother. Go do it. Look at verse 4. But that night, that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell David, uh, my servant, thus says the Lord. Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved, with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? And he's saying, David, you think I need you to build me a house? Did I ever say, David, I'm tired of this drafty old tent? Can you spot me some money for a new house? You think, I, you think I need you to provide me a house of cedar, David? Cedar's for hamsters. My streets up here are made of pure gold. Right? You, you get the sense from this text that there's this, this sort of playfulness here that God's having with, 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 with David through Nathan. Look at verse 8. Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture from following the sheep that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies from before you. I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And the violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you, that the Lord will make you a house. So, 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 so notice, David goes to, goes to Nathan and says, I'm going to build the Lord a house. Uh, Nathan says, yeah, go do it, brother. And, then, and then, then God comes to David and he says, listen, did I ask you to do this? He's like, I, I, I took you from the pasture, David. This is amazing because God just says, I'm going I'm to make you a house, David. Who's building a house for whom here? David's not building one for God. God is building one for David. God did not choose David because David had stuff that God needed. God did not look down from heaven and say, Oh, at last, somebody rich enough to build my kingdom. I need him on my team. You see, God created it all. At no point has God ever been in need. Now look at this next section because the Lord speaks about a future house that he will build for David. Look at verse 12. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, 
I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Now this is incredible because God promises in verse 12 here that long after David is dead and gone, the Lord will bring a king from his offspring. And then he says in verse 13, that kingdom for that king will never end. He promises that his love will never depart from this coming king. Now we know from, 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 from the rest of the story of Scripture that what, did, what the Lord is talking about here, he's talking about Jesus Christ. He's talking about his son coming. But we kind of get tripped up right in verse 14 because it says, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. Now we know that according to Hebrews, Jesus never once committed any sins. And yet, he took the punishment for our iniquities. Now look what happens in verse 18. This is is amazing. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and said, Who am I, O Lord God? What is my house that you have brought me thus far? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord God. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is instruction for mankind, O Lord God. For what more can David say to you? For you know your servant, O Lord God, because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. You see, David started this entire discussion like he needed to do God a favor. Like, I'm going to do this for God. And he ends it by sitting and wondering at the provision of God. This is our story as well isn't it? The whole salvation experience you see is not primarily about us doing something for God, but rather that salvation is about knowing something about God and sitting in stunned awe in the presence of God, amazed and overwhelmed and, and grateful for what He's done for us. Yes, you can do great stuff for God, but it's a, out of a response to, uh, from what He's done, not something for Him. You see, the house that God would build for David was so far beyond what David could see. It was not a building made out of bricks and wood. It was an eternal dwelling built by the blood of Christ. This is important for us to understand, right? That God doesn't need us. He doesn't need your money. This is one of the great uh, misconceptions, I feel like, in in the church. that, that, That we give because God needs our money. It's the posture of so many Christians. It's really quite harmful to think that God needs your money. And therefore you give is absolutely ridiculous. Absolutely ridiculous. You see, our God is not a weak, poor God who needs your stuff. God made everything with the words of his mouth. He's limitless supply of resources for his mission. No, no, no. He does not need your stuff, church. He proved this to his disciples over and over again, right? Remember the time that uh, they came to him and said, why aren't you guys paying taxes? Where did Jesus get the money to pay the tax? 
He got it out of the fish's mouth for crying out loud. He did more in 15 minutes with five loaves and two fish than Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos could do in 10 lifetimes. God has no needs. He never has had one. And if he did, he wouldn't come to you and I for it. Psalm 50 says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. You see, what God wants from us is an offering of thanksgiving for what he's done for us. He wants us to sit, church, and look at amazement of what he's done for us in Christ and then respond appropriately. You see, in Psalm 50, it says, he says, and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you will glorify me. Listen, how do you and I glorify him? Do we glorify God by all the great works we do for him, all the great things we do for God? Is that how we glorify him? No, but rather by calling on him in the day of trouble, allowing him to work through us and then acknowledge the great things he has done for us so God doesn't need our money. But you see, three, three things in David that are worthy of our consideration here. Three, three things that uh, are worth us copying of David. Number one is, is investments for, for eternity. Investments for eternity. David wanted to leverage the money that God had given him for God's eternal kingdom. And God said that this was a good thing because David realized that what God is building on earth is more important than what David was building. What God was building on earth is more important than what David was building. And David is wise to want to steward his resources he had for God's eternal kingdom. You see, in fact, even though God turned down David's offer to build him a house, he says in 2 Chronicles uh, verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 8, he says, But the Lord said to David, my father, whereas it was in your heart to build a house for my name, you did well that it was in your heart. You see, he said, David, it, it's a good thought. It's a righteous thought. David, the fact that you wanted to build the Lord a house, it's good. It's righteous. And so, so, so David goes in and collects all the materials, but Solomon, your son, will be the one to build this temple. Randy Alcorn, in a, his book, The Treasure Principle, says this. He says, financial planners tell us, when it comes to your money, don't just think three months or three years ahead. Think 30 years ahead. In Christ, the ultimate investment counselor takes it even further. He says, don't ask how your investment will be paying off in just 30 years. Ask how it will be paying off in 30 million years. And you can't take it with you, but you can send it on ahead. So investments for eternity. This David, David wanted to, to give to the Lord because he realized that what God was doing on earth was far more important than what David was doing. Number two, giving grateful offerings. The second thing that David did uh, was to give a grateful offering. David was so grateful to God, he wanted to give something to God to show his great love for God. He saw all that God had done for him, and he wanted to give in response to that. In fact, at the end of 2 Samuel, God reveals the plot of land upon which the temple would be built. And he tells David, he said, you can provide the land for the temple. And so David goes to the guy who owns it so he can buy it from him. And the guy who owns it, he says, nah, like, you, you can just have it since it's for the Lord. But here's what David's response was. He says, no, no, no. I insist 
I'm paying you for it because I will not give unto the Lord that which costs me nothing. This is amazing. David insists on paying for the land because he knows the issue is not about providing something that God needs. The main point is the statement David's giving is making to God about his worth to David. He says, says, the Lord means so much to me. I have to pay for this. It has to cost me something. I have to show God in some way my love for him. So I don't want to give offerings to God that don't really cost me anything. There are many of you whose gifts to God don't really cost you anything, do they? You see, if David was grateful to God because of what he'd seen God do, take him out of the pasture, make him king, give him great possession, wipe off all of his enemies, how much more grateful should we be to this same God? Because we see what God really did to build the temple. Jesus would be the temple whose flesh was torn and body was sacrificed so we could go into the presence of God. Doesn't that do something to you? If you looked at your gifts to the Lord over the last year, what does the gifts say about how you feel about God? About his worth to you? Number three, obedience to God's spirit. David did with his money exactly what God instructed of him. David recognized that all that had belonged to God, he could do with it whatever God said. He realized, I'm just a steward. I'm not the owner. Therefore, whatever God says, I'm going to do. And there's this overlooked element in giving, especially when it comes to our finances, which is the spirit of God is deeply involved in this entire process. When you look at a lot of biblical stories about giving, it will say things like, God stirred up so-and-so's heart to give. When Moses collected things to build the temple, he said, let each one give according to what God has put in his heart. Paul says in 2 Corinthians, let each one give as he purposes in his spirit. In other words, as God lays it on his heart. You see, giving is supposed to be a spirit thing, a a spirit-driven thing in which the spirit moves in our hearts. And we listen to him, and we obey as he directs. Now, I know, we're Baptists, so we're going to struggle with this because we are much more comfortable simply giving our 10% of our checks as tithes and not have to sit and pray and wrestle with God on how we should actually spend our money. But understand, we never back God into a box. Giving should always be spirit-led. David Jeremiah says this. He says, I sometimes think that the reason a lot of us don't know what to give God is because we've simply never asked him what he wants us to give. Church, have you asked God what you should give to God? And when you've listened to and obeyed him, you don't have to feel guilty because you are obeying God. Be settled in your own heart. I just want you to ask the question. So three principles that undergird every biblical teaching on money. God gives you uh, money to invest in his kingdom, to pour out the, uh, the offerings to God, uh, thankful offerings to him, and then to do with it what he tells you. Now I want to move for a moment from, from 2 Samuel chapter 7 to, to the New Testament. Uh, this is kind of where we'll land the plane this morning. Uh, flip over to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 
1 Timothy chapter 6, because if we simply just look at only the Old Testament and understand, uh, well, what did they do in the Old Testament? How did they give their money, right? We, we, we very clearly see 10%. That was the law. They give 10% of their money. And so we, we go to the New Testament church and we ask ourselves, is, is this what God has for us? And here's where I want to land the plan with a very real and very practical call on you to search your heart. Because you see, Jesus was getting to the heart of the law, why the Old Testament law existed, the heart of it all. And he was, he was teaching that this isn't just simply about rule following or rule keeping, but rather the type of people he wants you to be, which is generous. So look at it, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17. This is Paul talking to, to, to young Timothy. Chapter 6, verse 17, he says this, As for the rich... Which, by the way, that's, that's all of us, all of us. I know where we got all kinds of different economic statuses uh, that comprise the church, our church, local context, but, but know that as for the rich, contextually, all of us in this room are, are massively wealthy, massively wealthy. So don't think that Paul's not talking to you. Don't think that the Spirit of God isn't talking to you because you look around and you say, well, I don't have a lot of cash, Pastor. Look what he says, verse 17. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Paul's point is this. Riches have a way of sneaking in and taking away your love from God and replacing your love for God with the love of money. This is a danger that exists in each of us. The, the, the riches will sneak in and take away your love from God and replace your love for God with the love of money. You say, well, not me, Pastor. Uh-uh. I will always love God more than money. And if that's you, if you think that you are untouchable when it comes to your affections for treasure, then I need you to hear me. Watch out! It's as if you're child was playing with his remote control car on the sidewalk and he accidentally drives it into the road and he looks both ways doesn't see a car coming and he starts to step into the roadway and at that very moment a car comes barreling down the road around the corner right towards him you would scream wouldn't you you say watch out you would run and scream and you would try to get your child and in that shouting your boy or your girl would stop and the car passes safely by and your child would say, I looked, Dad, Mom, I looked, there wasn't anything there. I looked both ways. So it is with you today. If you do not take these words to heart, these words which say, don't set your hopes on riches, you might not see that these very riches are right this moment, barreling down the road and around the corner, right towards you. See, this danger of riches sneaking in and taking away your love from God and replacing your love for God with the love of, love of money is real. Riches become the thing you think about when you think about a, a well-lived life. You can't imagine a well-lived life that doesn't involve a healthy amount of money. Or riches become the one thing that we think has to be there in the future for us to feel secure and very quickly, very rapidly, money replaces God in our hearts. And so Paul instructs Timothy to, to tell them, 
Tell them, don't do that. Rather, set their hope for security and their hope for significance on God who provides for us with everything to enjoy. This is incredible. It's not that money is bad. You don't need to feel guilty about money. God gives money as a blessing and He is glorified when we enjoy the money He's given us. Look what He says in verse 18. They are to do good, to to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so they may take hold of that which is truly life. Now notice what Paul says here. He says they are to do good and to be rich, not in wealth, not in treasure and money, but rather to be rich in good works. And they're to be generous, ready to share. Don't miss this. The overwhelming theme of the New Testament and your relationship to money is one of generosity. One of the best ways you can gauge your heart and your relation to personal finances is seeing if you are truly generous. I've preached before on tithing, the New Testament take on how we should give to the work of the Lord. And in the Old Testament, the law was that there was to give 10% of their money to the work of the Lord. But what we find in the New Testament, when we read, is not a flat rate amount. If you're a Christian, you're not under the law of God to give 10% of your money to this church. But rather, you're under a greater law, the law of Christ, the scriptures would say, which is one of deep generosity. But I don't think you need me to tell you that. See, I'm not sure you need me to tell you that you're not under a law to give 10% to the church. Consider these statistics. Only 10 to 25% of church members tithe. Only 5% of the U.S. participates in tithing. On average, Christians give about 2.5% of their income to the church. Which, if you're tempted to think, well, Pastor, 2.5% is better than nothing. Compare that to what Christians gave during the Great Depression, which was 3.3%. So given these statistics, I'm not sure you actually need me to tell you you're not under a commandment to give a certain percent to the church. Rather, I think these statistics prove to us that we don't quite understand the New Testament's meaning of generosity at all. So let me close with these verses as a means to move you to generosity. Just simply listen to what the Scriptures say. Paul in 2 Corinthians 9, 6-11, he says this. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work as it is written he is distributed freely he is given to the poor his righteousness endures forever he who supplies need to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God or Acts 2 44 through 47 and all who believed that's you and I by the way were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Or Acts 4, 33-35. With great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. You see, the New Testament's understanding. You say, I feel like all the church ever talks about is money. It's def- if you've been around here for any length of time, you know that's not true of this place. But I wonder if, 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 if we look at Jesus' words alone, one out of ten verses in the Gospels themselves all have to do with money and uh, physical uh, material possessions. Maybe we don't preach enough about money. Maybe we don't preach enough about generosity and giving. You see, there's this, there's this thing that exists in our hearts where we think that we can love God, serve God, and, and the gospel not actually affect our, our giving and our money. Listen, the gospel changes us from the inside out. Paul says that, behold, he's making all things new, right? The old man is gone, and he's given us a new man. That includes how we think about money. That includes how we think about giving and generosity. We don't think the way the world thinks anymore. But rather, we think about how God would have us think. So church, we need to be generous. Checking your wallet and checking your giving is one of the best ways you can actually do this. James would say, examine your own hearts. So let us examine the past year, or the past week, or the past month. How have you stewarded your money to God? Not because God needs it. It's ridiculous. But rather, out of a response to the love which God has for you, we should all be moved to give and live generous lives, to steward well. Let's pray. Father God, we love you. We, what a sensitive subject and topic it is when it comes to our personal finances. We feel like that is maybe one area where we feel uh, the pastor should have no say-so over, or the church should have no say-so over. Perhaps even if we're honest, a lot of times we look at our money as if you should have no say-so over. Lord, I pray that we would repent in our hearts and realize that every good gift we have, every, every dollar in our bank account, every investment we've ever made has been because of you. Because of you, Father. Well, let us realize we are not owners, but rather we are simply managers and stewards. And when we come to the end of our life and we want to say we, we, we lived a life well lived, May we be able to look at our checkbooks and our, our, our money and our time and our treasures and how do we steward these well for your kingdom, for your glory. Well, I pray you would show each of us individually throughout this next week and in the coming days, Lord, how we can give, how we can do more for you, not out of earning it, but out of response and simply have a great love for you. Pray you work in all of our hearts. In Christ's name, we pray. And I'm going to ask the deacons to come to prepare the Lord's table.